0: good. So let us begin. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. St. John, yes. in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come on in. Good morning. Um, so today is the Feast of St. John, and this Feast of St. John, therefore, it would be good to speak about him. And there's two things that I wanted to bring up. The first is the gift of the Eucharist. And the second is the wisdom of the cross and the gift of Mary. Um, and from John's perspective, um, there he received Mary at the cross. So the cross and Mary are intimately united for John because literally it's when he received her. And if you note, um, John, in the Gospel, he's given to us as the beloved disciple. Uh, His name is not mentioned. His name not being mentioned is partially, I'm sure, out of humility. But if he says beloved disciple all the time, it's also uh, to show us a way, a way of being closer to Christ, a way of entering more into his intimacy. And so the whole thing of hiding his name and calling himself the beloved disciple or not giving himself a name is there to make it so that almost anyone could be the beloved disciple. That is not just reserved for John. But in the Gospel of St. John, you're going to find those two things, I think, that really, really marked him. At the beginning of the Gospel, you have that famous vocation or that calling that he had and with that vocation or calling it was that he was first a disciple of John the Baptist and in following in the footsteps of John the Baptist he heard what John the Baptist said when he said behold the Lamb and so when John the Baptist met Jesus, John the Baptist in a certain sense, offered to Jesus his two best disciples. And John being one of them, John goes up to Jesus and Jesus says, what do you seek? Rabbi, where are you staying? That first moment is to dwell with Jesus. And so immediately, if we're talking about St. John, We're talking about this transition from doing to being. The transition from um, this active life to an interior life. The where do you dwell is this call to come and dwell next to Jesus, to rest next to Jesus. The passage from becoming to being this resting next to Jesus is going to be a theme throughout the gospel and I think that there are two great 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 mysteries that we're called to enter into in the, fo- in the desire to follow Jesus this desire is going to lead him to the cross of course the great mystery of Christianity but it's going to lead him through the Eucharist first. I think the Eucharist is the first big step for John. You have the famous passages of uh, John 6 when he's going to hear the Bread of Life discourse. And in the Bread of Life discourse, you discover that Jesus is going to say, if you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, You have no life in you, and it's going to be expounding upon this mystery of the Lamb that he had first heard from John the Baptist, because this chapter 6 is going to be given once again on Passover day, and the whole aspect of the bread is a reminder of the Last Supper and the Passover when they had the unleavened bread. And so in John 6, it's going to be something that is going to be very important for John. You know, at the end of his life, he's going to make a specific point in writing John 6 in there. You don't find John 6 in any other gospel. And in large part, it's because it was a great secret that John, of course, held, realizing that it's being forgotten, He desires to write write it out for us. This gospel was written perhaps around 95, so long after any of the other texts had been written. Realizing that this passage had been forgotten, he writes in the whole Bread of Life discourse. In the Bread of Life discourse, it's going to give us that famous comparison between the manna, which was this bread that was given so they might survive in the desert. And the Eucharist, the body of Christ, as this new bread that is given to us to survive in the desert. Put before this aspect of the Lamb and how we are to eat his flesh and drink his blood, John, it's like he was in a process of discovery because the words, though they may seem obvious that they're referring to the Eucharist, at the time when he first heard this, it certainly wasn't obvious on what it referred to. All that was obvious to him was that it was expounding upon the Lamb, the mystery of the Lamb. All that surely he must have grasped was that same theme that he had had from the beginning of the vocation when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb. And now he hears these words on the day of Passover. If you do not eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And that it is a bread that will take them to eternal life. That Bread that will lead them to the resurrection of the body. It's a lot like that bread and Passover, if you remember. That Passover meal that saved them from death. So he didn't have yet this whole mystery of the Last Supper. But he certainly grasped that there's something here of the Lamb. So the how it would all work out, I'm sure he didn't understand that. But something at the heart of John or the mystery that John gives us is this mystery of the Eucharist and the following of the Lamb. And then if you move forward a little bit, you find, of course, the Last Supper. The Last Supper... He reveals, again, things that are key that we didn't ever really have before. And what is the, the other keys that he revealed? The, another key is the mystery of the Lamb is there to wash our feet. That the mystery of the Lamb is there to lead us into this mystery It's this great mystery of fraternal charity, of loving our brothers and sisters. If you remember that passage, you have John who's going to discover that the Eucharist is understood as Jesus washing our feet, as going unto the end for us, going all the way. And so, when he washes the feet, he washes the feet of all the disciples, all the apostles, and he washes the feet of the one who will betray him too. And as he goes to Peter, there's that famous passage of, um, "Do not uh, is it yeah? How does he say it exactly? Lord, do you wash my feet? What I am doing." You do not na- know now, but afterwards you will understand. You shall never wash my feet. If, you, if I do not w- wash you, you have no part in me. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And you have this great dialogue here between Jesus, Peter, and also John. John is going to enter into this. And how Peter, in his naivete, he doesn't want Jesus to wash wash his feet. Now, Peter, he says, are you to wash my feet? And then he figures out that he has to in order to receive. And so he says, well, then wash everything. Wash it all. Wash it all. That foolhardened, Attitude of Peter. He uh, wants to go for everything, and Jesus again corrects by saying, "He who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet. But he is clean all over, and you are clean. And not all, but not all of you." And there, too, we're entering into something that's entirely different than any of the other gospels. This. Um, aspect of washing the feet was so so foreign for them that a master, a leader would wash the feet, the feet being taboo, being something that is very much against the culture to do. And then he goes on to say that uh, if you call me teacher and Lord, you are right, for so I am. If then you're Your Lord and teacher has washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Here too, so you're finding something about the mystery. Not only is that mystery, uh, like we saw, the manna that's going to hold us up in the desert. The Eucharist is the thing that holds us and keeps us strong throughout our entire life, helps us to walk forward. Not only is the manna that one thing which is going to help the angel of death to pass over and for us to survive, for us to thrive, for us to enter into eternal life, but here we find that the the Eucharist is going to be the great mystery of Christ coming unto the end and r- lifting us up and washing our feet, Humi- humbling himself, humiliating himself, humbling himself, and making himself a bread so that we might be washed clean, so that we might be saved. But then, too, it is this mystery of John that's going to be talking about the Eucharist uh, that is going to lead us into the whole aspect of resting our heads upon the heart of Christ. He's the only one that develops that. And so right after that, um, Jesus is going to say that one of you will betray me. And so Peter invites John into the whole dialogue. If you remember, Peter turns over to John and he whispers to John to try to figure out who it is that is going to betray. You remember that famous passage? You've heard me probably speak about it many times. But he does. He, it's a beautiful passage because he leans over and he whispers into um, John's ears saying to figure out who it is. And when he he does, John does turn over to figure out who it is. But this passage says that he turns over and he leans his head against the breast of Christ. And when he leans his head against the breast of Christ, that's where we enter into the mystery of the Eucharist. That's where we enter into what Jesus was leading us to. For he turns over, he leans his head against the breast of Christ and he says, who is it, Lord? And Jesus says, the one who I am going to dip the bread into the oil and feed. And he, he then does that. And John sees it's Judas. But he also sees that Jesus love Judas unto the end. That Jesus is offering his very heart to to Judas, even when he knows that Judas will betray. And that John realizes at that moment that not even the hatred of betrayal will cause Jesus to stop loving. John realized when he switched from Peter, Peter, the one who is trying to control and fix all the time, trying to make everything all right, to Jesus, he realizes that he has to go to a whole nether register, to a register where love cannot be vanquished even by the worst of all sins. In the categories of sin, very often, people like Dante, will put the worst possible sin as the sin of betraying a friend. <laughs> the worst possible sin would be betraying a friend. And here Judas is committing one of the worst possible sin in betraying Jesus, stabbing a knife directly into <laughs> Jesus' heart. And Jesus, he still picks up the bread and dips it in the oil and hands it to him. And that's why immediately after that you have he goes out and it it is night. The devil enters into him. He goes out and it is night. For Judas, at that moment, chose to betray once again. And what was that doing to the heart of John? How did that transform the heart of John to see all that? And that's, I think, where I get into an interesting question is there is an evolution in the life of John. It started out, though, on a good note. How, what was that good note? It was the fact that he was willing to uh, come and dwell with Christ. That he wanted to follow Christ wherever he would go. He wanted to go and dwell with him. It wasn't like he wanted to show off and show that he's the greatest. Although there's a little bit of that as you walk down the path. It wasn't um, either like he's doubting right away, like some of the other ones were doubting when they first approached. With John, it's just the simple, he comes and he dwells. He comes and he dwells. And there is going to be something close also to Mary. Something very close to Our Lady, where it's just to come and be in His presence, to be present to the one whom she loves. Now, with John, though, he is a young man, and he has a good deal of fire in him. But he's going to have to tame it. And how is he going to be tamed? Well, Jesus will tame it teams it's through the through these progressive steps the discovery of the mystery of the lamb that Jesus is the lamb that we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood discovery of a mystery that's far greater than he had ever imagined here though in chapter 13 you find a pivotal evolution And here we find this moment where John rests his head upon the breast of Christ. And I always like to remember the Trinitarian aspect of this. That it's, for John, a much bigger thing than we think immediately. It's not just resting your head upon the heart of the Eucharist, for John. There's only two passages where it speaks about breast. And the other passage is very similar, actually, to this. And it is John chapter 1, verses 18, verse 18, that speaks about it. And it speaks about it in a Trinitarian way, saying that the Son, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father... He has made the Father known. And it is a really important passage because it's that only begotten Son, who is Jesus, who dwells in the bosom of the Father. He never leaves the heart of the Father, never leaves the bosom of the Father. He dwells in the bosom of the Father. And he uses it in present tense, actual. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, dwelling in the Father, he speaks about the Father, or he reveals the Father from inside the heart. So he stays or dwells in the heart of the Father and makes him known. And that would be chapter 1, verse 18. And the only other passage that talks about breast is going to be this one. Where the beloved disciple rests upon the breast of Christ. And it's an important passage because it's literally saying, as the Son dwells in the Father, we are called to dwell in the Son. They didn't have a forged theology where they're able to work with all these terms as we are. And so it's nice to see something so dense and so important already present. And it's true that for John, this was a, a major turning point because he received the Spirit from the heart of Christ. And he began at that moment to understand that love is the only way to fight. That it's the only way to really conquer. That further control just enters into a dialectic. That your husband is controlling you so you control back your husband and then he controls you back and then he controls you back and then they controls you, control you back and they control you back and they control you back is a never-ending cycle it's a never-ending cycle which we call a dialectic um, which is a thesis the antithesis and making a n- synthesis which creates a new thesis then you have another so it goes a a b we make a c that c becomes a new one so we make a d And then we make a synthesis of that, so we make an E, and then it goes on and on and on with opposition, constantly arguing, always trying to have control. Finally, understanding that he cannot win, really, by always seeking for control. It was really the Holy Spirit that was given to him when he rested upon the breast of Christ. And there is a great evolution, a great development in the life of John at that moment. But notice it had to pass through crisis for John. If he didn't have crisis, it wouldn't have happened. If it wasn't that he stayed with him up to this point, And it wasn't, like, for example, it wasn't the Last Supper that did it. It was the context, for sure. The Eucharist was the context in which it happened. But it was the revelation that one of you will betray that caused John to turn over and rest his head upon the heart of Christ. And because He realized the evil that was happening. He turned over and he rested his head upon the heart of Christ. And it was only at that moment, the crisis moment, that he turns. And this evolution is going to happen in his thought, which is really an important question for me, is why he's going to enter into the next point, which was wisdom of the cross. Why is he going to enter into the wisdom of the cross? Why does he remain at the foot of the cross? The only of the one of the twelve. The only one of the twelve. I think it's an important question for today. When everyone betrays, when everyone leaves the church. I think it's an important question for today. Um, what is the core reason why we remain faithful? And it has to be really love. Because being right yeah you do have to fight for things (laughs) you can't uh, that's a big lesson in history i mean you can't just say love right i wish it was that easy um it has to be primarily that though and that in the end will be the only thing that will win in the end but you can't just you can't say i'm not going to be prudent or intelligent or uh uh obedient or i don't know anything else because i'm just going to love which would be another major error and so he is going to make a major jump though and this is a a core point if we want to understand who is john this mystery of the cross is rooted in allowing the wisdom of love to be victorious. And so, it's like every time, too, in John, that there is a crisis and a crucifixion, there's going to be a proclamation, some kind of proclamation, a new kind of a proclamation that will, will happen. So, Immediately after Judas betrays, Jesus gives his new commandment to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Not as we want to be loved. A new commandment I give you to love one another as I have loved you. And there's a connection again between the two. It's because of the victory of love over Judas. Judas betrays, and the moment of betrayal, Jesus offers him his heart. He offers him his heart. And because of the victory, Jesus is going to reveal again something new. He says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. It's a nice point. He says immediately, right when Judas betrays and it is night, he says, I am glorified. The Son of Man is glorified. Why? Well, we saw it in John. The glory of Jesus radiated into the heart of John. John perceived his glory at that moment. When John saw that he loved him unto the end, And his mind, his whole vision of changing, his wisdom, everything about John changes. And he sees that it's not about control, but it's about love. The glory of Christ began to shine in the eyes of John. And so Jesus cries out, now is the Son of Man glorified. In no other gospel do you find so much mention of the glory the glory of Christ. And note, too, the glory is not attached with the resurrection directly. It's attached with the victory. So here there's a victory, a victory over the betrayal of Judas. He was victorious over the betrayal of Judas. Not in the way we normally perceived. Judas still betrays. When he's dying on the cross and he loves and he forgives, all those who crucified him, there's another victory. But not in the way that we normally perceive victory. The way we normally perceive victory would be that he would come down from the cross, right? And here, it's a whole different way. A whole different way of being victorious. A whole new kind of glory is going to happen. It'll manifest itself most in the resurrection. But it's already present at this betrayal. It's interesting, because in the greatest darkness is finding, we're finding the greatest glory. Too. Now is the son of man glorified, he says. He also said it right when he began the last week, the Passover. Hopefully that's not lit. I better be careful. And pour wax all over the ground. Um, there's a candle in front of me. Um, the Yeah, the glory is going to only come out at the greatest darkness, which is a sign of great hope. And so John is going to be completely transformed by the glory of Christ. Notice, too, what kind of mind it would take to perceive all this. Is it a mind that is reductive, that reduces everything, or is it a mind that's admirative and amazing, amazed at all things? I mean, it would, it would need to be a mind that is always amazed and easily amazed, almost childlike, to be able to wonder enough to see, to see it. Otherwise, it would be a mind uh, that would be distracted all the time. It would have to be one that would not get distracted all the time and be amazed at what is going on. Then, too, uh, you're going to find... um, some huge points uh, about the wisdom of, of the cross. Some of the main points uh, would be nice to bring up. Let's hit first the turning points in the conversion of John. The conversion of John. And the turning points in the conversion of John would certainly be um, the moment of the crucifixion when he's standing before the cross and he is offered his mother. Would certainly be a moment that transformed John. I want to first look at that, and then I'll go back and look at some of the texts around it that show how he perceived it, how he perceived it that first moment where he received the mother of Christ and then he saw the eye thirst and the wounded side, I think were huge for John. Those, those moments, the receiving of the mother of Christ, first, What could that possibly have meant to him at that time? How would he have perceived that? I can only imagine. But certainly, we know a few things. We know that he obviously took it as a conscientious responsibility because he carried it out throughout the rest of his life. That much we know. That it wasn't just symbolic, that he did take it literally because he took on Mary the rest of Mary's life on this earth. The fact that he received his mother at the foot of the cross was also something that struck him. And it must have struck him as something that was the gift that was given to him at the moment of crisis. He certainly would not have made it to the foot of the cross if Mary had not been there as a stabilizing presence with her sure faith, hope, and love. Standing by, Mary surely helped him immensely. But to when he received Mary as his mother at the foot of the cross, it surely, too, was a bit more than that. It surely, too, was also him becoming a child of God, becoming the brother of Christ. It surely, too, was him being as a beloved disciple taken into the family of god and having this same mother with uh, that christ has he now understood that he is called to live that same life as christ to live united with him it's funny it surely was directly uh, related to Christ from beginning to end. It wasn't to focus on on Mary. For Mary, it must have been something that um, our founder would say it must have been another wound in her heart. Not a real wound to look at John, but a wound in a sense like to take her eyes off of Christ. Given entirely to him, Now she turns to someone else at this last moment, right when he's dying. It must not have been easy for her to turn over to someone else. And he, too, must not have seen it as something that's immediately obvious. Why is this happening now at the moment of your death? And so when they turn to each other, They must have seen it as a direct mission that is given. He could have said it again long before, but he says it at the moment of death. And why would he possibly say it at the moment of death if it wasn't to include them in his mission at the cross? What were you going to say? it's a consolation on a divine level but not on a human level in a human level it's just a distraction from the her son who's dying on a divine level on level of faith hope and love yeah yeah it would be a consolation to see the mission mary being the most intelligent possible she surely grasped quite a bit but i don't know how much anyone can grasp when uh, without hindsight without being after and reflecting upon it at the moment i don't know how much is possible for anyone to grasp so she probably grasped the maximum possible whatever that may be but she also grasped that uh, because she has a human nature and her human nature is perfect and so it was it couldn't have been easy for her to look away as a mother And being immaculate, she must have wanted all the more to be next to her son. All the more to be next to her son. So it wouldn't have made it easy, the fact that she's immaculate, for her to turn away. Any distraction would be going against what she would want. But she knew it wasn't a distraction, but it is a distraction. It's a material distraction, not a profound spiritual one not a profound spiritual one. And for her, at that moment, yeah, it, it was a jump where she's opening up her heart to include everyone explicitly. I'm sure she already had. That is making a jump where she's now including him explicitly in her heart as a son. For Mary, it must have been a major jump, enlarging her heart, if that's a word. Enlargening her um, yeah. <coughs> enlarging her heart. Yeah, enlarging, or what do you say in English? Uh, those who speak English, good. <laughs> um, the, yeah, it must have been something that helped her heart to grow. And for John, though, too, not fully understanding he sees that he's entering into a church, what we call a church. He sees it as entering into a family, entering in the family of Christ, the family of the Lamb. Because this is given to him at the foot of the cross, it's all still tied up with the Lamb and the sacrifice. And remember that it's Mary who will and be the one standing at the foot of the cross with him, offering with her son to the Father the body of her son and the sacrifice of her son. Like we say, um, I offer you the body and blood, soul, and divinity of your dearly beloved son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that was Mary doing at first, offering his son back to him the famous scene of the Pieta. And John learns at the school of Mary how to do that. Learns at the school of Mary how to offer back to the Father. And here it's something that is not just intellectual, right? It's not just an intellectual thing or like just saying the words. Here Mary is doing it. Through the wounds and through the crisis through the, the, spe- the sword that pierced her heart through the sword that pierced her heart she offers to the Father all that she is and again it's a whole new evolution in the life of Christ not only is there an ecclesial dimension or a church dimension but here there's a priestly dimension and he's learning it through Mary A priest is one who stands between humankind and God and offers to the Father the sacrifice for the people. And Mary is going to be the priest here offering her son to the Father. We are all priests insofar as we are baptized, right? And this is how we are priests. This is the royal priesthood. This is the true priesthood. The priesthood of Jesus Christ. The one who offered himself as lamb. Mary offers herself as lamb. In the lamb. And John, he's going to learn this. And now he knew it. He was well educated. One of the things that we know about John is that he was very well educated... And because he was well-educated, he knew it theologically, and now it's passing far beyond just theology. He's living it. He's living the new Passover, the Passover where we ourselves become lamb, offering our own lives, a whole sense of sainthood. Sainthood is the offering of my own heart and my own life for my children, for my family, for all those around me. to the Father. And so much is this offering that he's going to learn still far more because you're going to see how much the I thirst stood out. When Jesus cries out, I thirst, it wasn't just um, a simple request for a drink. It was a priestly cry. It was a cry to offer all the more. I thirst to offer more, my life for you. I thirst to offer all. And it's interesting because he had already offered everything on the level of his body. But the greatest expression of offering everything on the level of the soul is that cry of thirst. I offer all my love. And how do you offer all your love? Try. I offer you all my love? Well, I could offer it again. I offer it again. <laughs> I offer it again. The best expression of that is thirst, desire. At least on this earth. In heaven, there'll be f- uh, fulfillment, quenching. Quenching. But on this earth, there is no full quenching. There will always be more thirst. Always more thirst. And so, I offer my whole body for you, my whole life for you physically, but then I still have more interiorly. You see that often when people are dying. When they're dying, their body is quenched, but their soul is not, and they're still able to love. And often, if they're, if they're aware of that, all the more. Uh, often, if we can help them to be aware of that, that they can open up their heart all the more unto the end, and that their dying breath be a cry of love, it becomes a beautiful death a beautiful death. And not a tragic death by any means. Uh, Well, by some means, maybe. But not by any true means. And the cry of thirst is that. And expresses itself in word through the thirst, I thirst. And in gesture, the same reality is expressed by the wounded side. His human heart is... So fill with love that when it is pierced, it bursts forth with water and blood. And remember, too, I mean, all the symbolism that's so latent in all this is that that water and blood is more than just water and blood. It is the covenant. Remember that the covenant is sealed by the blood. Remember that um, the Passover, too, is sealed by the painting of the doorway. By the painting of the doorway with what? With blood. With blood. And remember all the symbolism that's latent in this. When it be that the ire, or the anger of God will crush the grapes and forming that new wine, And forming that new wine, that wine of his wrath. All the symbolism of the Old Testament And here we have the suffering servant. And this great wisdom of the cross is going to be central to the conversion of John. And it's in line with what we're talking about in the Eucharists. But it's a huge jump for John. Where he learns that glory, true glory, is only had in the wisdom of the cross. And so we can go back to John 17. And in John 17, the most beautiful prayer gives us a reinterpretation of the agony in the garden. Remember how John was there at the agony in the garden? One of the three that fell asleep? And John was there at the agony in the garden. And here he gives a reinterpretation of an element of the agony of the garden. and gives Jesus this prayer. And just that, those first verses, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. It's The hour has come. The hour of the cross has come, so glorify me. Glorify your Son. Glory is a term that's usually used for when you have victory. The victory when you come back from war, You come back victorious, you come back glorious. Glory is the term for the radiating of victory. And he's saying, now glorify your son. He's even going to say, glorify your son with the glory I had with you before the creation of the world. It goes immediately Trinitarian. Immediately... uh, Divine on a totally different level, and you don't find that anywhere else. It's absolutely amazing because it goes okay, before the creation of the world, God is eternally glorious. Now, glorify the humanity of Christ, let the humanity of Christ enter into that glory that God has. Let the glory of God, the eternal glory of God, now radiate in the huma- human body, and in the human soul. I have manifested your name. I am praying for them. There are so many important themes in this one. But... That aspect of glory is key. And it would be beautiful to go back and re, re re-read all of the writings of John in the light of glory and the term glory. And just uh, to expound upon that. It's something that in our Western church we don't talk much about. It's in the Eastern church. The Orthodox, for example, talk extensively about glory. It's all about glory. They had a liturgy of glory we've had traditionally a liturgy of the cross our liturgy was much more the cross and theirs was much more the resurrection or the glory traditionally um and that's why in our churches traditionally you have the crucifix and in theirs they have all the icons they have all the icons which some of them could be icons of crucifixes (laughs) and that's not but uh, not where we're going but the icons themselves were all manifestations of glory of the glory in the saints and the glory of Et Christ, cetera, etc., etc. Cetera. And it's the other kind of lung of spirituality, uh, Christian spirituality for sure. The other lung of spirituality, the first lung would be that of the priestly offering, the second one would be that of the glory that comes from the victory. And so it's like there's conversion in the heart of John when he discovers that the glory is the wounded side. The victory is when blood and water pours forth from the side of Christ. and That's why at the end of the gospel, um, Peter hasn't fully recognized that yet. And so Peter, he's going to receive instructions from uh, jesus jesus is going to say to him that famous passage uh, do you love me yes i love you feed my sheep do you love me yes i love you feed my lambs do you love me yes i love you feed my sheep Um, he receives those corrections to make reparation for the three times that he betrayed he has to say three times i love you and then after that that famous passage where it says it's kind of ambiguous. I had to read it a few times to really go. What? 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 Um, it says that when you were young, you put you girded yourself and you went where you wished. When you are old, you will someone else will gird you and take you where you do not wish to go. He was speaking about this in reference to the way that Peter will die. Literally, is what the passage says. <laughs> it's like hmm. What? <laughs> it's like huh? And then when you realize the way that he died, it makes sense. It makes sense. And the fact that up until the end, he was still running from the cross. He's girding himself. He's clothing himself and going where he wants to go. Up until the end, he was doing that. But at the very end, he allowed someone else to clothe him and take him where he does not want to go, which was take him to the cross. He allowed himself to be taken to the cross in the very end, that famous passage. John allowed himself to be taken the cross already. And so he's the only one that is not uh, martyred. And so he turns over to, Peter turns over to John, and I interpret it as him turning to John saying, well, I mean, this man didn't betray you, so what about him? He deserves more. And Jesus says, "What is it to you if I wish that he stay until I remain? As for you, follow me." And so, then it corrects it and says, "He did not say." Let's actually read that. This does not mean that this person shall not die. That's not what it means. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but that. And then he repeats exactly the quote. So it's it's like still it's one of those passages like, what? what i don't get it so you have to read it a a bunch of times meditate upon it come back but jesus said said to him if it is my will that he remain until i come what is that to you follow me the saying spread abroad among the brethren that this disciple was not to die but jesus did not say to him that he was not to die but if it is my will that he remain until I come. What is that to you? And so Jesus, Jesus having revealed these two great mysteries, the mystery of the cross, the mystery of the Eucharist, the Eucharist that carries him all the way through, and the cross is the, uh, with inside the cross Mary, inside the cross Mary, these two great, great mysteries that are revealed to him are what, is going to carry him until he until Jesus comes for him will allow him to remain to dwell will allow him to dwell and not to seek to control will allow him to follow and not to seek to gird himself and take himself where he wishes to go but allow him to live with Mary in the Eucharist, to rest his head upon the heart of Christ up until the end, till Christ comes for him. And so he died of old age, um, resting in the Father. You have those famous stories about him when at the end he couldn't do anything else. They would take him in on his couch, kind of thing, and he would say, God is love, God is love. name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.